on today's TikTok Made Me Read It book review episode, we're talking about Light Lark. Now go ahead and smash that subscribe button, ring the bell, comment, like, and share this video. Do all the things to help this channel grow. You know you want to. Now let's get on with the show. Disclaimer before we begin. I encourage everyone watching this to pick up their own copy of Light Lark, read it for themselves, and form your own opinions. Trust me, you'll either really enjoy it or really f***ing hate it. If there's a TikTok book you'd like me to review, then comment it below, and if it interests me, I'll give it a read and tell you what I honestly think, keyword being honestly, because I don't sugarcoat sh** on this channel. And now it's time for some shameless self-promotion. If you haven't already heard, Year of the Author has officially launched its editing and critiquing services. I offer copy editing, line editing, and developmental editing, proofreading, and critiques for full manuscripts, chapters, and outlines. For more information, please check out the About section on this channel or email me at yearoftheauthor at gmail.com. Now let's get on with the show. The characters. Isla. Isla is the innocent virgin trope through and through. Or is she? It's never really explained or answered if she f***ed the darkness, aka grim, or not. But there were some steamy makeout sessions and a weird finger-banging session in a dank dark mirror castle, so there's that. Lightlark gets one very limp, spicy pepper. For someone who was born without powers, yes, born without powers, Isla sure as f***. Knows how to get out of anything and everything bad and or life-threatening. Oh, and did I mention? Isla was born powerless. Not a single solitary drop of power is in her veins. I mean, it's mentioned at least once a chapter, so I must include that fact here in every section of this review so the viewer doesn't ever forget this. It's screaming Charlotte has brown curly hair, or Olivia is poor and all the laundry list of constantly reminding the reader of a fact over and over until they will never forget it. If I have to suffer, you suffer with me. It's called community, after all. Now on to Celeste. Celeste. With friends like Celeste, who needs enemies? Am I right? Unlike Isla, Celeste was born with powers. See what I did there? I have a lot of feelings about this chick. For starters, the moment we found out this bitch was Isla's best friend in the whole wide world, I knew she wasn't to be trusted. When it comes to competitions, best friends are never to be trusted and are the first to be slaughtered. How do I know this? It would have been the ultimate betrayal for Isla if Celeste was the villain of the story and screwed her over big time. Here were some of my in-the-moment thoughts when she was first introduced as Isla's best friend. I want her to be hiding her own secret like she has this needle. Meaning she had this bond breaker needle the entire time, all along. Or that she hates Isla and is working against her or using her to get further in the game. Those were my notes on her. And I was pleasantly right. It turns out that Celeste is actually Aurora, some crotchety pig-nosed evil queen from when the curses were originally set. Now this is where things turn into a huge clusterfuck of what the fuck is even this, at least for me. You see, Aurora was in love with Oro's brother, or something like that. I really don't remember the Jerry Springer breakdown of all of this fuckery. The brother then falls in love with a wildling and has a baby with said person. When news of it gets back to Aurora, she flips her literal sh**. 
and kills them both. Rightfully so, since she was supposed to marry the man after all. I mean, come on. Oh, and that baby? Guess what? That baby was born powerless. Yep, you guessed it. Isla is that baby. Aurora then spent the next 500 odd years keeping her realm at a distance. You see, no one could know she actually survived the curse while every other ruler was killed. When it was time for her to go to the Centennial, she changed her outer appearance so no one would catch on. But one person did catch on, and that was, you guessed it, Grimm, the Dark One. Also, in Aurora's epic chapter-long villain monologue that laid out the entire plan from start to finish, she tells Isla that she was born with powers. Legas, who would have thought? Apparently, Isla is half wildling and half nightshade, and her powers were cloaked by nightshade powers. I know, this just screams plot reasons and Isla needing to rely solely on learning how to physically fight for the epic showdown. All in all, it didn't shock me, like at all. Now, let's move to the most forgettable character of them all, Azul. Azul's character was only developed for the sake of diversity. There, I said what everyone was thinking. And I'm sure people are going to be outraged because they always are when I say what they're thinking or, you know, saying behind the scenes, but not in public because of appearance reasons. But what the f*** do I know? Azul is the gay that lost his husband. I don't remember how, but he did somehow, and I felt literally nothing, and it was easily forgettable. I felt nothing because his dead husband is literally only brought up in passing. It was like this character was not allowed any page time whatsoever. I want to say that it was the main curse that did the husband in, but I honestly can't remember. This is how little of a role this character played. Azul is also easily forgettable and just a check mark to claim diversity. Because if I remember right, not only is he the only gay character, but he's the only black character. So of course, just throw him out with the trash, right? I mean, diversity though, because you can claim it. Now, if he played Cleo's role, his check mark would have actually counted in the cast. Instead, Azul and his husband were summed up and praised for being gay. And that's pretty much it. And I mean overly praised to the point where it's clear as day what the author's intention was with his character. Being gay. Diversity. That's it. His character literally did nothing for the story. Look, being gay isn't a bad thing at all, and I'm all for gay characters in books, so do not try to claim things that are not true. But at least act like you give a sh**. And it isn't thrown into the mix for cool diversity points, and that's it. Because it's going to fail every time, and it's going to stand out like a sore thumb. Using diversity as just that, a diversity checkmark to seem inclusive, is not doing anyone any justice. It's not. It just looks bad, like real bad. And readers will see it for what it is, disingenuous, and ugly. The best way to not let this happen is to not shove your gay characters in the background. Make them main characters or main side characters, and then they'll probably matter. 
if still done the right way. Avoid at all costs having the diversity checkmark character walk on the page and then walk right back off the page, never to be seen or heard from again. Give them an actual voice and make their characters matter. Anyway, Azul is gone for the majority of the book. I don't understand how this writer's agent, editor, or even CPs or beta readers didn't mention that Azul doesn't get much page time, yet they're totally banking on the diversity checklist. It's just, it was so bad that I can't even remember what this dude is supposed to even really look like. Come to think of it, I don't think I remember most of the ruler's looks like it all. Except Oro's golden hair and Cleo had white hair, I think, if I'm remembering right. All I remember is the reader is constantly reminded that Azul is gay, like the reader is constantly reminded that Isla was born without powers. You will never, and I mean never, forget that Azul is gay and Isla was born without powers. Pretty much every time Azul is mentioned, there is something said about his gay dead husband. How Azul is gay, and he's gay, and just gay, and gay. And how Azul misses his dead husband, who's also gay. That's how over the top it was, and ridiculous. How Azul is just ready to sacrifice himself and his entire realm to save the world of Lightlark, because he's gay. But enough about Azul, let's move on to the golden boy Oro, or as I like to call him, Zeus Daddy, even though I hate the label Daddy. Gross. Like I said, Oro is the golden boy in every sense of the word. So apparently Oro isn't supposed to be a 40 to 50 something year old father figure. Nope, not in the least bit. So my bad. So by the time I finished the book, got real weird real fast. You see, Oro is the other love interest of Isla. Yep, th there's a love triangle. Too bad it's not between the two guys to make more gay characters. But much more on this cluster of what the fuck is even that later in the romance section of this review. Anyway, from the get-go, I pictured this dude as Zeus. A wise older man who is crushing for younger chicks apparently because he's in love with Isla. It didn't translate at all to the page, just pointing that out. Oh, and apparently Oro is dying. Don't worry, you won't forget that fact either. Just like you won't ever forget that Isla was born without powers and Azul is a sad, dead husband having gay man. It's literally beaten into your head in almost every chapter throughout the entire story. I'd say take a shot every time it happens, but you'd end up in complete liver failure by chapter 5, so maybe that's not a good idea. But lucky for you, I'm here to make sure you all don't forget it either. Here at Year of the Author, we suffer together because community. Anyway, Oro enlists Isla to help him look for the heart of Lightlark so he can save everyone from dying, including himself, because, you know, he's dying, and we can't forget that. I personally wanted Oro to die or see him nominate himself for death since he was already one foot and a hand in the ground. But of course, nope. Not at all. He didn't do it. He can't die because he loves Isla. Even if there was no attraction coming from either one of them on the page, like at all. It was so unbelievable. But rant on this later, so I don't repeat myself. Instead of sacrificing himself, Oro wants to kill said emo boy, 
Grimm instead. Because he's all dark and brooding and sexy, unlike Golden Boy Oro. And don't forget, he's in direct competition for Isla's love. Also, he's the King of Lightlark, but the island only appears every 100 days. Does he stop being the king when it disappears? Where does Lightlark go? How does any of this world work? Don't worry, it's never explained. So let's get to my personal favorite character in the whole book, Grimm. Grimm. My dude Grimm has all the fun dark magic. He apparently is super hated by all the other leaders, quite like myself in the Authortube community. Which I think is the best trait in a love match, because I stand with the saying, those who slay together, stay together. I only say this because everyone fears and hates Isla's wildling people too, so it's a perfect match. The cherry on top is that he also has big dick energy, and Isla knows it. But instead, Isla wants to go f around with age play with Zeus daddy golden boy who's 10 days away from being bedridden and powerless. I personally think Grimm and Isla fit better together, and they felt like there was at least some mutual attraction. But more on this later, because it's going to be a bitch fest for me. I want to know more about Grimm and his world and how Isla fits within it. I mean, we find out that Isla is half Nightshade and half Wildling, so that's a guaranteed freak in the sheets right there. Everyone would fear them, and they'd make the most adorable babies. And what is she going to do with Golden Boy anyway? Have boring store-brand vanilla sex on his hospital-grade bed when she could enter Grimm's dungeon of pleasure? He can show her all the dark and delightful things there are in the Shadowlands. He could shake all of Lightlark to the ground with his sturdy oak. And yes, that's a metaphor for something else. But let's move on to the biggest red herring of them all, Cleo. Cleo is queen bitch. I feel her vibe completely to my core. The author tried so hard to make the reader believe she was the real villain here, but I know my villains well enough to see the red herring written on the walls, and she was truly the biggest red herring of them all. She was just trying way too hard to be like, Cleo is the villain, don't trust her. Look at her villainness. She gives Isla dirty looks and she's mean. Meh. Meanwhile, it's the nice ones. It's always the nice ones who are the closet bitches and villains. Remember that. This isn't a Jenna Moresi novel after all. It's a step deeper. So the mustache twirling villain isn't the real villain. Cleo is just the of the book, and that's all that's really to her character. There really isn't anything else. Also, the reader finds out that she's building up an army, and that when everything is said and done with the centennial, she sliced the ropes on the bridge to her realm and basically put up a do not disturb sign. So if there is a second book in the works, this will come back into play. I'm calling it now. Now let's move to the romance of this story. 
the romance slash love triangle that apparently was a thing but totally wasn't actually a thing. I can't be the only one who did not see that coming. Comment below if you were also like surprised and shocked at that. So the romance between Isla and Grimm was noticeable from the very start when they first meet for the very first time. Even though it isn't their quote-unquote first time meeting since Grimm wiped Isla's memories for good. Saying this out loud makes this setup feel like a soap opera, like I'm watching General Hospital. Anyway, it was clear Grimm was the one and only and then Golden Boy done f***ed everything up. There was an instant attraction between Grimm and Isla that makes the reader know this is the real love interest, not Oro. We see their flirting and little jabs at each other turn into something cute over the course of the story. Then the finger-banging session happened in the Mirror Palace, and that's when things got weird. Like, real weird. But before that, Isla was having sexy dreams of Grimm, and there were a lot of forehead touching. I guess in the world of YA books, forehead touching means they totally banged it out. Those harlots. It's safe to say that I was feeling them together. For once, I enjoyed a YA romance pairing, mainly because Grimm was walking and talking darkness and there needs to be more characters like him. This is where the author f***ed everything involving the romance up. During the entire plot of the novel, or a very large chunk of it, Isla is pretty much seeing Grimm on the side, like he's a dirty little side piece. Meanwhile, she started getting cozy with Oro. It felt awkward and unnatural and just weird. The Light Lark King she was supposed to seduce and con him into something, I forget what, I think it was maybe to help her out in the game or something. I think it was to fall in love with him or something like that, I don't know. But I forgot mainly because this dude Oro has total dad vibes. I'm talking Zeus from Hercules, and Grimm felt like a smoking hot Hades, no pun intended. So here I am picturing Oro as this much older guy, I'm talking 40s or 50s, and he falls for Isla, who I believe is supposed to be one of the youngest, if not the youngest rulers of this entire world. Don't get me wrong, I love a good age gap romance, but nobody wants to their dad unless you know you're in a k webster novel lost in the alaskan wilderness and even then there's probably some weird plot twist making it a lot less gross and less taboo this romance pairing between oro and isla ruined the entire love story for me and what's with all the forehead touching like everyone is touching foreheads like everyone like this is the cone heads and it's how they show love I'm surprised this isn't just how people greet each other in their world. All in all, I was totally for Isla being with Grimm because, hello darkness, my old friend. He just bleeds depression and speaks words of melancholy, like what is not attractive in that? What's not to like? And I'm pretty sure he's toxic as fuck, so that brings a whole new level of toxicity to the mix. So in book world, that screams perfect match. Come on. Who doesn't like a good farm-fed emo dude circa 2004? He probably even has his nipples pierced and has a snake tattoo. Or if this is the literary world, some literary phrase. I don't know. 
Extra points if he has that weird helmet haircut that was running rampant in the early 2000s with the swoopy bang. Such a bad look. It's almost as bad as those mullets that are out and about nowadays. Now compare all of that with Oro, the mature fatherly figure who never once came off like he was at all interested in Isla in any way, shape, or form. There was no interest on that page. In fact, this dude felt more like he wanted to yeet Isla from the cliffs into eternal hellfire. This dude had no chill, and it showed in pretty much everything he did. Some of Oro and Isla's interactions felt very forced as well. For example, it felt like, oh, look at Oro. His rock-hard, untrusting exterior is starting to crack, all because of her. Barf. Isla needed to choose violence and big dick energy, not hospital-grade limp beef. The only real moments I liked with them was when Isla got white girl wasted and was flirting with Oro. They got to talking and then she fell asleep with her head on his lap, but again, this didn't feel romantic at all. It came off like she was this young girl and he's this much older man who's putting up with her sh because he has to, and he has no other choice. But then again, there was that time when they went nearly skinny dipping in ice water to look for the heart of Lightlark. Oro had the nerve to ask Isla what her body count was. Like, come on, dude. Rude. Then proceeded to tell her he bedded many a woman in his days. <laughs> again, making him feel decrepitly old. We get it. You're a man whore. Oro, we get it. But fun, sexy time isn't in Isla's character arc. She's the sweet, innocent virgin type with lethal skills and no powers, because we can't forget that. No powers for Isla. Did you not see the throwing stars in her hair or the sword shoved up her ass? She has skills, man. Skills. Oh, and did you hear? She's also powerless. Or is she? Either way, him asking if she's ridden a dick or five before meeting him felt more like an interrogation to verifying her age so he doesn't end up on the To Catch a Predator show than it being him showing genuine attraction. It was just a very, very awkward scene. Writing and pacing. The writing quality in Lightlark was both good and bad. There were moments where I thought the descriptions were great, well-paced, and didn't bog down the narrative at all. But I did start noticing a lot of patterns to how the narrative was written. How it flowed and the overall sentence structure and development of the story. Here are some of my in-the-moment thoughts while reading. The author keeps mentioning that it's 100 days to the centennial over and over and over again. If you read the book, you'll know what I just did there. It was the author's favorite crutch over and over and over, again, again, again. Isla is way too accident-prone and almost dies twice in the first day before anything can actually happen in the story. The first time is when she steps foot into the Lightlark world from a portal and almost falls off a cliff. A fucking cliff. And the next time is when she's singing on a balcony just because she can and has nothing better to do with her time. 
she's then startled by Oro and falls off the balcony off another cliff and falls, falls, falls into the ocean below. She hits her head and almost drowns, but wakes up soaking wet right back where she fell. But now there isn't any Oro standing around her to spook her. Why does this book remind me so much of On Wings of Ash and Dust by fellow author tuber Brittany Wang? Why? There's a tower library too. There are different realms that are battling for power. The MCs are super young but have trained all their lives to beat people's asses. And asses they beat even though the reader is constantly told they are tiny and small and so, so feminine because that's believable. I'm noticing that there is a lot of questions asked in this book. Questions the reader should be coming up with themselves, and they are handed to the reader so easily, like it's being spoon-fed to them. Readers aren't stupid. They can catch on and think for themselves and come to the conclusion naturally. This is yet another example of writing being dumbed down because authors think their readers are stupid when they aren't. Anyway, something will happen and then at least three questions will be asked right after the situation happened. There is a pattern forming and it's starting to get distracting. There's a lot of again, 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 or she ran and ran and ran. That's another pattern forming that is now becoming too repetitive and relied on too much. Then throw in how her back teeth clash together in every other chapter and at least a dozen smirks. Why are the leaders splitting into pairs? Why not work as a big group? This screams plot reasons only. The part where Grimm said he knew Isla's secret, that she was born without powers all along, was good. I really liked that part. But then the moment was completely destroyed when he starts calling her quote-unquote heart instead of the normal heart eater, which is cheesy as fuck. I didn't like that at all. Also, at the end of chapter 39, Isla says now she can only trust Grimm. Um, what about Celeste, bitch? The supposed best friend in the whole wide world? Her partner in crime, her sister from another mister, the chick that also kept her secret from being born without powers. That proves that Isla is that girl who forgets about her friends once a dick comes around. It's not a pretty look. I wonder if Oro just pulled a trick on Isla and outed her secret for other reasons. Like he plans on killing Cleo, or even better, lets himself die by being a sacrifice since one realm's ruler must die. God damn it. I knew Celeste would betray Isla. She was the only one that made sense. The ultimate con. The ultimate betrayal. Friendship. No one. Can be trusted. But I have to say I kind of liked it because we don't really get to see the best friend turning into the real villain as much as I would like to. Unless I'm reading the wrong fantasy books, that is. Comment below and let me know if this is actually a common thing in fantasy or not. Also, was her saying she only can trust Oro a hint to the reader that Celeste was the real bad guy? Who am I kidding? That's way too deep for this story. I'm chalking it up to the author making a mistake and no one on her team caught it. 
just like I don't think no one on her team gave her realistic feedback or edited this book. I also didn't like the whole twist where Isla and Grimm knew each other and he wiped her memory of him. What was the point of all of that? It renders everything in this book involving their romance pointless since he knew they were already a thing and she just forgot. But it's also really f***ing confusing. At least in the narrative explanation of it all. And lastly, the reader gets almost an entire chapter for a villain monologue, detailing how Celeste isn't real and she's just Aurora, the evil pig-nosed queen just being evil. Those were all my notes while reading. I know, it was a little bit ranty. But if you're not new to my reviews, you know I talk openly and bluntly about all the books I read. So here's a breakdown of the Deadly Tournament itself. The breakdown of the Centennial Competition slash Tournament that isn't really a tournament. The first part was the demonstration of power, aka a talent show, which is literally yet another similarity of On Wings of Ash and Dust by fellow author tuber Brittany Wang. The sea trial was a talent show. In Light Lark, talent show. The first up is Grimm, and he's picked a not so epic sword fight. The rulers are paired off. The winners then battle other winners, and it ends with Oro and Isla fighting each other. Hum. Another similarity with On Wings of Ash and Dust by fellow author tuber Brittany Wang. The last competition, all the tournament people had to pair off and did this style of sword fighting. One by one, the winner of one would compete against another opponent, and so on and so forth until there was one left. So either all of this stuff, the talent show, the sword fighting, is either stereotypical in YA fantasy tournaments, or this is just all just a huge coincidence. So let's talk about when Oro and Isla end up sword fighting against each other. Isla lets Oro win, which she later rubs in his face. I'm telling you guys, this is still reminding me so much of On Wings of Ash and Dust, like I just said. Check out the full read-along for that book and the review for more similarities. I'm telling you, it's riddled with similarities. So which was published first? Which was written first? Do the authors know each other in real life? So many questions and no answers. The second person up is Azul. He picked a talent show where they had to show off their powers. Since Isla is born with no powers, she did a party trick with a throwing star pulled from her hair. She called the king, aka Oro, as a volunteer and blindfolded herself with a glove. She then threw the star and hit the king's crown, knocking it from his head. Again, that's not a power. The next up is Celeste, and her test was to test a fear with a mirror. Um, can anyone say American Horror Story Coven, Harry Potter, Divergent anyone? Just saying. The next up is Isla. She wanted everyone to show what their realm brings to the table in Lightlark. Like, what good has their realm done for the world type of thing? The next up is Cleo, and she had the test of desire. It sounds very sexual, but trust me, it isn't. Not in the least bit. It's basically just an ice water bath where everyone is led by their hearts and personal wants. The fastest person to the middle of this thing wins. The final person is Oro, and his test is a truth test. So it's like a truth or dare. 
hook them up to the lie detector and get Mori on it. They each drink three cups of tea and the tea leaves reveal their deepest secret. Again, Harry Potter and any witchy type story is here. Anyway, everyone smashes their cups on the floor and Oro tells his truth. He's dying. Dun dun dun. That's it for the display of the realms. At the 50 day mark, there is the ball. Well, it's a ball. What YA novel doesn't include a ball? There's dancing and there's a Grimm and Isla moment. He then tells her to dance with Oro, apparently trying to push them together. Shit goes down and there is an earthquake type of disaster and some nobodies die. And this kicks off Oro and Isla searching harder for the heart of the island. The last celebration, I think, was around the 75-day mark, but I could be totally wrong here. It's been a hot second since I've read this book. It was another party called Carmel. Everyone, as in the realm leaders, has to attend at least for a little bit, then they are free to leave. Isla gets drunk. Celeste gets poisoned. Unless I forgot any other stuff, those were all the main things in the Centennial. It's not deadly. It's not action-packed. It's nothing like the Hunger Games and more like a very tame game of hide-and-seek. To improve the story, Lightlark should have been multiple points of view. Now hear me out. The reader would be able to get into the heads of all slash most of the main players, or at the very least, the two other love interests. The only downside to this is that the reader wouldn't have the quote-unquote big twist moment, where Celeste is found out to be the villain and Oro loves Isla. Which again, Zeus daddy. I can't picture him as anything else but an old Zeus man who's like a father figure, not a f***able figure. Ew. And how Grimm wiped Isla's memories of him, and they were actually a thing before the Hundred Year Games, for I think it said a full year. I felt absolutely nothing for the twist. The ending was confusing as f and all over the place, and rushed. Crazy rushed. That is why it was confusing, at least to me. It was rushed and thrown together poorly. Again, traditionally published. How was this book traditionally published? I don't understand. And this book probably made a killing. Let's go on to the editing. There was a lot of extra fluff that could have been cut to help tighten up the sentence structure. For example, sentences starting with but or and or or. The sentences could have been combined and read the same way. The jerky stop-and-go feel of the punctuation is what can pull readers out of the story, or at least that was my reading experience. I noticed a large amount of the phrase he slash she said slash smiled meanly. I don't know why, but this stood out like a sore thumb to me. There were a lot of repetitive metaphors like buttery sun and hair-like ink on his brow. Metaphors are great, but if you use them over and over and over the same way, it loses its appeal. Overall, the story took me a good 60 to 100 pages to finally settle into the story, mainly because of the choppiness, repetitiveness, and cluttered feel of the prose. And that is the last thing an author wants is 
60 to 100 pages to get a reader to finally be interested in the story, that's terrible. And all of the above seem to jump into overdrive later on in the story. So I wonder just how much editing the story got and what kind of feedback the author got from CPs and betas. The centennial is 100 days long, but days and weeks pass without any explanation. There are large chunks of time where nothing is happening, and it's just glossed over. For example, eight days passed since Ilo was with Oro last. For something so important, a whole lot of nothing is going on. And if nothing is going on, it's just Isla and Celeste going to town or looking in libraries on different islands for the bond breaker. And if that isn't happening, it's Isla and Oro looking for the heart of Lightlark. Then shoved in between all of that are the few competitions and parties, and a few interactions with Grimm. Basically, it felt like there were two separate stories going on, but the author was trying and failing to blend them together. What can writers learn? Writers can learn how to weave in world building so it doesn't feel like an epic info dump. There was world building being done throughout the entire story, which is good. It does feel like overkill in some portions of the book, but it's a lot better than waterfalls of paragraphs of world-building info dumps, or even pages or full chapters of it. Writers can learn how to write sexual-slash-attraction tension fast. The instant attraction between Grimm and Isla is there when they first meet, and you can feel the gradual build of the tension through interactions, dreams, and finally heated moments. I personally think this was done well. Writers can learn how to use flashbacks in a non-info-dumpy way that doesn't take away from a scene. There were a bunch of little flashbacks throughout the story that was, in my opinion, good. There weren't scene breaks to have a few pages of backstory or full chapters. It was a few paragraphs tops, and that is why I think it worked well. But there were a few that threw me out of the story. I had to reread them to figure out what was even going on. And for me as a reader, I absolutely hate having to do that. The world building. The world building for the different realms was bad. Like, real bad. The realms and their leaders needed a lot more substantive work to really get the reader emotionally invested in why the readers need to break these curses. Everything felt surface level and summarized. Instead of showing things in action, it was quote-unquote, just and just realm was cursed with this, or this realm was known for this, or the people of this realm are feared. Instead of telling the reader all of this vital information, show the reader these things when Isla goes to that realm. Let us see it and experience it in action. For the most part, things didn't really add up at all. For example, if wildlings can't fall in love, how are they making babies? Are they just having a bunch of meaningless one-night stands to get knocked up to keep the population going? Do they not love their children, and the children don't love their parents because they fear death? The reader is told the population is quickly dying off, and they are running out of human hearts to eat. But there is very little time spent showing any of this. Instead, it's spoon-fed to the reader and laid out like playing cards. 
And then we have Celeste's world where they can only live until they're 25. So are these people just dropping dead on their 25th birthday at the exact time of their birth? Are they being sacrificed for the greater good of their realm? Are babies having babies? Their population is either really mature for their age or kids are raising kids and everything is a huge cluster of what the is even going on and where is CPS? Except, you know, for Aurora, aka Celeste, who is the only one not affected by this realm's curse. How convenient is that? A lot of the explanations in this story scream plot reasons, which is something I personally can't stand in any book I read. It's never believable or realistic. What I want to know is why would anyone want to willingly bring a child into this realm if they're going to die by the age of 25? I mean, someone at some point in this realm should be able to think logically that they only get to live for 25 years and that's it. What's the point of even living if you pop out a kid at 20? You'll just see it reach the age of five before you inevitably die, and who's going to take care of said child? Or if you have the kid at 15, the kid will be 10 when you die. So again, who is taking care of all of these orphaned children? Also, what if the mother gets pregnant midway through her 24th year of life? Does the baby die with the mother? Or is their biological clock not ticking anymore when they reach 24? None of these questions are answered. I don't think any of this was fleshed out by the author or her team. I personally think the wildlings should have made a deal with the starlings. In exchange for human hearts, they offer them protection from other realms. For example, on the person's 25th birthday, they are sacrificed. Perhaps a wildling rips out their still-beating heart and eats it. Yes, it's a barbaric practice, but this is what they were cursed with, right? Depending on how the condition of the heart has to be, this could add a cool horror element to the story. And it could show the wildness of the wildlings. And it could explain how Celeste and Isla met and kept in touch. Like maybe they had a pact that Isla would eat Celeste's heart. That's friendship. That's commitment. <laughs> this would add some great world building and make the world feel a lot darker than it used to be. This would add some great world building and make the world feel a lot darker than it came off, at least to me. I also think there should have been a scene where the rulers had a blunt talk with each other about how life is for their people back home and how bad things are getting for everyone by the passing day. Maybe they could openly argue with each other that one realm is beyond repair like the wildling or starling realm and they should volunteer as a sacrifice for the greater good of the entire world. This could have shown the realms this could have shown the realms as being cutthroat, desperate, and they're willing to fight for their people no matter the cost. Instead of it seeming like they get along and only tell the reader the rulers are out for blood instead of delivering it and showing it on the page. The controversy. People are saying this book is horribly mismarketed. Readers are saying Lightlark is a Court of Thorns meets The Selection and not Hunger Games. Basically, it's a mashup of a whole bunch of YA novels and nothing about it is at all that creative. Now, I personally haven't read A Court of Thorns and Roses, I think that's what it's called, 
or the selection, so I don't have any opinion on that. But I can say this book is literally nothing like The Hunger Games, which is the only reason I wanted to read it. I'm trash for a good fight to the death tournament, and Lightlark isn't it. It feels like a talent show, parties, and a scavenger hunt, and that's all. Another reader claimed that when Grimm professed his love to Isla, it was also a straight ripoff of Pride and Prejudice, to the point of looking like plagiarism. Others are saying the author promoted Lightlark as having a bunch of tropes that were in the book, which is horrible to do to any reader. For example, one of the tropes was enemies to lovers. Grimm and Isla were instantly attached and attracted to each other. They never tried to kill each other. Even the romance between Oro and Isla isn't enemies to lovers. It came off more like mentor and trainee. Again, Zeus daddy and his annoying kid sidekick babysitter job. Other readers are pissed that there are no morally good female characters. They are all seen as backstabbers and conniving bitches, except for Isla and Ella, the servant girl, of course. No other female is redeemable in this story. All the bad female characters were never forgiven, yet the men f***ed up multiple times throughout the whole story. Isla would just call the men out on their bullshit and then just forgive them. But when Miss Cleo rolled up looking to make it rain some Isla blood, she was like, Cleo's still a villainous bitch who can't be trusted. Um, hello? Oro straight up revealed your deepest, darkest secret to all the rulers right in front of your face, bitch. Come on, you can't be that dense. And Grimm had a full-on relationship with your ass for a full year and wiped all of your memories of him so you wouldn't f up his plans. But all of that is forgivable and is seen as just gameplay. But Cleo, f that hoe. Cleo is just a backstabbing bitch from page one, chapter one, and the reader doesn't even get to forget it. It doesn't make sense to completely villainize one character, but only forgive the men who supposedly loves it. I'm chalking this up to Isla only doing it for Dick. Other readers felt the portrayal of the minority characters was gross and problematic. I personally wouldn't say that, but I will say that Azul being gay was thrown in just for the sake of diversity, cool points, and that's it. But we're seeing that problem run rampant in all the books being published in today's time. Everyone is rolling out their huge diversity checklist for cool diversity checkmark points, and that's it. The majority of it isn't coming off as genuine or real. It's just, look at me, buy my book because diversity. My characters are so diverse. It's a selling tactic, and it's gross at this point. But that's a whole nother argument for a completely different video. And as I say in most of my book reviews nowadays, diversity no longer actually matters in the publishing world. Yep, I said it. It's only used as a marketing tactic and selling point. I mean, if it did matter, why are they leading with labels instead of just selling the plot of the story. Why are the majority of the diverse characters barely their side characters? Or they come on the page just to say their label and walk right back off never to be heard from again. Again, that does not look at all genuine, no matter how you try to look at it. If they walk on and back off the page, it doesn't matter. 
but if they're the main character or the main side character, then if done the right way, it matters. Another reader brought up how Lightlark is the perfect example of the toxic relationship between social media and the publishing world, and I couldn't agree more. I'm sorry, but your follower count or subscriber count means absolutely nothing to me. It's just a number. It doesn't matter. In a sense, this has backfired on the publishing world because readers are starting to get angry that people are getting six-figure deals simply for being popular. Yes, you heard that right. If you're popular in today's world, let's just give you a book deal. You don't have to have talent. You can write the world shit book out there. Sure, I get it. Publishing is a business, but it's kind of a running joke now that all of these famous TikTokers are publishing terribly written books. Sure, they're making money. They're making it big. Great on them. But what sucks is if you're not popular, you're never going to reach that status and what happens to people's personalities when all they concentrate on is popularity. You get fakeness. You get, I'm going to play the social game to get ahead. I'm going to social climb to get ahead. I'm going to do whatever it takes, climb on anyone's backs to get ahead to make that coin. It's not genuine. It brings the ugliness out of everyone. And sadly, that is the direction everything is headed towards and I want no part in it. I almost want to tell the publishing world to do better and make books matter again. At this point as a reader, when I hear one thing about a person having a large following and they got a publishing deal, my first thought is that book is probably beyond terrible. Let's have a nice roast review. And then I read the book and sure enough, more oftentimes than not, my hypothesis is absolutely correct their popularity got them what they wanted. And that's it. Not talent, not anything. And what goes hand in hand with that is that more people will then end up hate reading it, which then sells even more copies and makes the publishers even more money. So in a way, it's kind of like a joke on the readers. It's like, we're going to publish the world's this book, knowing full well you guys are going to be outraged and spend all your money on buying this book and hate reviewing it, not realizing that you're giving us all of your money and making it even more popular, therefore feeding into the fact that good publicity is now a fraction of what's acknowledged these days and bad publicity is what is getting people ahead. If you don't believe me, literally look at all of publishing. It's right there if you just open your damn eyes and see it for what it is. And all of this will only continue to lead to even more shitty books being published due to someone's high follower count and not the quality of their work. To end this, all I have to say is, since when does a person's follower or subscriber count matter more than the content of their work? Well, to end this video on a happy note, comment below and tell me, have you read Lightlark or do you plan on reading it? If you have, what are your opinions on this book? I'd like to talk to other people who actually read this book, so comment below and let's discuss. Well, that's all I got for you today. If you have any questions or if there's something you'd like me to talk about in my next video, leave me a comment. With all that being said, go ahead and smash that subscribe button and ring the little bell down below so you get notified of all future content. And I'll see y'all next week.
Bye.